0: I just want to thank Pastor Jim for the opportunity. Uh, I don't take it lightly. I take it seriously. I've been digging into this uh, book of the Word. Uh, Brenda and I, one of the things about us, we love the Lord, but we also love God's Word, and we love each other. And I'll just say this. uh, When I was praying about getting married, I said, God, I want a woman who will love you more than she'll love me. And I met a woman who was praying for a man who'd love God more than he would love her. And uh, we've been walking together for ah, 26, 26, I'm looking at her, help me, help me, 26, I think we're working on the year 26 now, we went through 25 last year, and it's just, if, if you, if, if you haven't stepped into that relationship, unless stepped into that relationship with the Lord, being with somebody else who loves Christ, it's a beautiful way to do life. And uh, you hold each other accountable. We challenge each other. Uh, We know what we believe and why we believe it. We have conversations about the word and she wants more of those. She said to me yesterday, I want you to wash me with the water of the word. And that's what a husband's supposed to do. Uh, So I try to take that seriously. And again, I thank you for the opportunity to speak uh, this morning. Uh, I love talking about Jesus. And with that, I'm gonna just open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, just praise your name and worship you and honor you. And Lord, I just ask you right now, humbly, I seriously ask you to help me, Lord, check my ego at the door and get out of the way. Lord, nobody here needs to hear me, but we all need to hear you. Lord, your word is going to accomplish what you send it to do. And by the power of your spirit, you will speak to us. You'll even speak to me and you'll speak to everyone here, those online and those who listen to this. You'll speak to us through your word if we'll only listen. And I pray, Father, we'd hear today what it is you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, with that, we're going into the book of Joel. Uh, this is the first week. And, uh, okay, there we go. Uh, the book of Joel, I thought, okay, great. It's only three chapters. Easy. Anybody know anything about the book of Joel? You know, no, it's not easy. The book of Joel is only three chapters, but good gracious, it stretches a long way through a lot of material, and it goes all the way into the future. Uh, Joel, he touches on multiple prophets. He touches on uh, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, Zachariah, Jeremiah, and he reaches all the way into the future and goes all the way out past Acts chapter two. Some of you know where I'm gonna go, and some of you are aware that he reaches all the way out into the book of Revelation. So Joel has a big footprint and a lot of material, and I just ask you, Lord to help me do some justice to it today, and hopefully, I won't have all the answers for you today, but hopefully, maybe some of you will leave today and go, hmm, I think I'm gonna go read me some Joel and find out what the rest of that story is about, because there's no way we can cover it all today. I'm gonna break it down a little bit to give you an idea of the main points that we're gonna focus on today. Joel starts his book in the middle of a national disaster. And he's got everybody's attention Uh, and then he leads the nation into national repentance he warns them and us of the coming wrath of God but the good news is he passes on to them that God has a plan for restoration and leads them to that but he also ends the book and in the book throughout he's talking about a day of judgment that is coming there is one day I'm going to stand. I'm going to remind you, if you haven't thought about it lately, the older I get, I just had a significant birthday not long ago, and the older I get, the more realistic it becomes the fact one day I'm leaving this world. Uh, and I will stand before God, and we all will. But I don't want to stand in my righteousness. And my goodness, because it's not good enough, my best is not good enough, but I stand in the finished work of Jesus Christ and I'll be accepted by that and that alone and it'll happen by the power of the Holy Spirit who we need in our lives and we need in our church and Joel is all about the Holy Spirit. He is telling us he's coming and he's already come. But who is Joel and how did he get into the story and what's he all about? Well, I looked him up, his name, very simply, Yahweh is God, says it all, uh, and in Joel chapter 1, verse 1, he enters in, oh, excuse me, before I go there, let me ask you this, uh, we don't really have a time frame for the book of Joel, we, we can't really nail it down, uh, there's a lot of conjecture about that, a lot of opinions, Joel in his book never really gives us the name of any king, Northern, Northern Kingdom or Southern Kingdom. He doesn't give us any other prophet by name. He doesn't give us anything significant that we can lay a date to and go, oh, there's a line in the sand, it happened right here. He does talk about the temple, so we know the temple was standing, so Bible theologians and scholars, they spread the book of Joel anywhere from say 200 years maybe before the book of Daniel that Pastor Jim's been preaching and teaching on to possibly even all the way after the book of Daniel, out past the time of Nehemiah. So we really aren't sure, and it probably really isn't that significantly important for the material that he covers, but you might be asking this morning because it's a book really speaking directly to the nation of Israel, and it's only three little chapters. Well, so why should I even care about it? Why should I care about a short little book in the Old Testament about a people that maybe I don't even identify with? Well, I would say to you that you're missing the point if you're not a student of the Old Testament. If you're not a student of God's Word, I challenge you this morning, become a good student of God's Word. Just put some time in on God's Word. It'll pay dividends in your life. Uh, It'll build your relationship. It'll build on your relationship with him. But if you're not reading the Old Testament, you're missing some of the greatest parts of the word of God. Uh, It is filled with prophecy. And if I can break it down, just make it very simple, I would explain it this way. Prophecy can be near prophecy and it can be far. And you find examples of both all through the Old Testament. Even in the three chapters of Joel, you'll find both. The near prophecy, the way I will explain it simply is, Things that were gonna happen and be completed in the lifetime probably of the prophet, the one who was speaking, or at least the people who were hearing the message. And in far prophecy could be things that were gonna happen many years after the death of the prophet or even after the people had all passed. And in Joel, you'll find Joel has near prophecy, it has far prophecy, and it has things that stretch all the way, like I said, past where we are today and all the way out into the book of Revelation. So it has examples of both. Joel really never confronts any specific sin that the nation has. What Joel seems to do is he seems to expect the reader of his message to be very familiar with the Old Testament, which means then they would already know what it is that God is considering sin. What Joel seems to really focus on is the consequence of sin. The good news even though he's standing in the middle of a national disaster, the good news is as bad as it is, and it doesn't matter where you're at today, you can relate to the book of Joel. Joel, you've got to get it, and I'm going to go here, but Joel is standing in the middle of a nation that has been totally decimated by a national disaster. And then he takes the stage and begins to proclaim God's word And we can all relate to it because no matter how bad it is today in your life, your situation, or whatever you're dealing with, the situation's never hopeless, and he's a testimony of that. And I'm going to put some context to that so you can see how bad it was for them. The book of Joel, it really kind of covers several things. He uh, is consistent with other Old Testament prophets. Uh, God is going to defeat the enemies of his people. He said he would and he will. Isaiah 13, Zephaniah 3, Ezekiel 38. God is going to restore or rebuild the world, as some people call it, a new Eden in the final days. Isaiah 35, Ezekiel 47, and Zechariah 14. But my personal favorite, and what I hope we can spend some time on this morning, is that God has said for a long time and has completed and has done what he said he would do. He will pour out his spirit on those that are his. Ezekiel 36 Isaiah 32 Jeremiah 31 and then we're going to get into the book of Joel and we'll see the beginning of that in Acts chapter 2. I don't want to do it without the Holy Spirit and you don't have to there is a day coming though that's called the day of the Lord and I I titled the message that I've tried to go started to go several different places with this but That just continues to ring throughout the message over and over. Joel uses this term. We can't map out exactly where it's going to happen. We can't be certain of the actual date. But I think something we can all agree on is we are closer today than we were last week. And as time marches on, we are marching toward a day. There is no way to stop the clock. I am fighting it tooth and nail. I am getting older. I am not happy about, well, I don't want to. The alternative, right? Uh, but I, I don't want to become the old man, not anxious to get there. Uh, and I'm trying to fight it, but uh, I'm going to lose that battle. Uh, when I leave, i want to leave exhausted. I want to leave everything on the field, uh, but I want to do that for the Lord. But we are moving toward the day of the Lord. It is a day that is coming. And in Joel 1 verse 1, we jump right into this. The word of the Lord came to this Joel, the son of Penuel doesn't help me a whole lot uh, because nobody knows who Penuel was. Maybe the people he was writing to or speaking to knew who that was. I thought of it this morning. If I told you my name is Jim McLean, I'm son of John, it wouldn't really help anybody in the room other than my wife because I don't think anybody else in here ever met my dad. Uh, And you know nothing about him unless I tell you about him. And so we don't really know anything more than that. uh, But, What we do know is he picks up the mantle of the prophet in the middle of a national disaster when everybody's attention's on him and he takes the next 12 verses to explain the devastation of a locust invasion that is ripped through that nation. And I thought about this. I went, okay, did God bring the disaster? Or was it just a natural occurrence? I think it's a question we typically ask when things in our life go wrong. I think it actually... Uh, Joel will explain later. There's scripture that makes it look like God did specifically bring this upon them, but I think it's still a fair question. Did God bring it to pass or is it just a natural disaster? And what I would say to you is what I say to myself is just because something bad happened doesn't mean God caused it and doesn't necessarily even mean that God allowed it because we live in a fallen world and things do occur. Hurricanes do churn through uh, the ocean and head in our direction. Other things occur. We don't need to blame God god for it but i think in joel's message it seems to me one of the themes of this is how do we respond when bad things do happen he goes into verse four and he lays it out the cutting locust what the cutting locust left the swarming locust is eaten what the swarming locust left the hopping locust is eaten and what the hopping locust left the destroying locust is eaten In other words, the damage is absolutely complete. I'll just remind you, they're an agricultural society. There is no going down to Walmart, there is no going to Sam's, there is no going to your Whole Foods or anywhere else that you might do your produce selection. If you don't grow it, you're not gonna have it to eat. And they've had complete devastation come and wipe through the nation. Really the question for me then is, what do we do when everything's lost? When it's all gone, you've lost it all. Or at least what you consider so important you think you've lost it all and do we even recognize our need when we find ourselves in that situation joel asked a question he's got their attention and he asked a question Hear you elders give ear all inhabitants of the land has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers in other words he's saying he's look you've got to put it in context he's standing in a nation that's been wiped out or decimated by a swarm of locusts all the farming everything they have that they're counting on all the crops they're expecting to come in have been eaten and destroyed and he says you ever heard of anything like this before has this ever happened before well actually something like this has happened before uh if you go back to when they were slaves in Egypt and God was forming the nation and about to bring them out And Moses went in and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then what happened on the eighth plague? What was the eighth plague? Anybody remember? It was a swarm of locusts. But the swarm of locusts were on Egypt, not on the Hebrews who were living there. But this time, it's happened to Israel. They're the recipients. And they should have remembered that, but I have to wonder, were they guilty of forgetting their history? Or were they even guilty of forgetting their God? I actually went online and I thought, I wonder if I can find anything that would represent what a swarm of locusts would look like, just to kind of put some context to this, because we're not farmers. Uh, But I was amazed. I found this right away. Uh, Moses, by the way, didn't take this picture. He didn't have an iPhone, okay, right? Uh, And Joel didn't take this photograph, just in case anybody's wondering. Uh, I found this online. You can look it up. It was under the heading, A Living Nightmare Defeating the Locust Plague of... 2020, I was absolutely shocked. Some of you may already know this, but just a couple of highlights from that webpage. Kenya locust swarms uh, have been larger than three times the size of New York City. That's this year. Uh, Ethiopia has locust swarms that forced more than 15,000 people to evacuate their homes in May. Uh, Swarms traveled from Pakistan into India for the first time since 1962. And in South America in June, they reported a nine mile swarm of locusts. Uh, And then in Yemen throughout the month of August, swarms of locusts were continuing to breed. And someone who was there and witnessed this devastation said this, they feast on anything green and within hours, any vegetation in its path is gone. He's almost like they're standing in the first 12 verses of the book of Joel. We look at the picture, we're amazed, and we go, good gracious. But we're not counting on the crops they're destroying to stay alive. It puts it in a whole nother context. In verse 3, he says, tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. In other words, he says, tell them, keep telling them, talk about it. Don't forget what God's allowed to happen here. Don't forget what's happened. And to try to put that into some context, I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Where were you when the Twin Towers were attacked? Do you remember? Depending on how old you are, it's going to be different. I can tell you exactly where I was. And I had to go back and look in case anybody forgot. Friday was the anniversary of 9-11, and I forgot—I honestly forgot what year it was, but it was 2001. So to put that into some quick context, that was 19 years ago. Can you believe that? It's almost been 20 years since the towers were attacked. I can tell you exactly where I was. I'd walked in the back door of the office I worked in, uh, One of the guys I worked with had a small little portable television about so big I don't remember exactly what it was. I wasn't into techie stuff, I'm still not. I got an iPhone, wasn't an iPhone, we didn't have those then I don't think, but at least he didn't have one. He had this little, phone, little TV set about so big, and as I walked in the back door, a couple of guys were huddled around it. He was holding it up and looking at it, and there was the Twin Towers live on television, and there was a smoking hole coming out of the first tower. And the rest of us stood around, three or four of us, five of us started to gather, and we're discussing it, and we're saying, Well, what's that about? And he said, Well, they say in an airplane hit the tower. And look, at the time, I'll put it, in, for me, it was really strange because I've been in, at that point in my life in aviation for 22 years. I would worked on airplanes, been around airplanes. That's, that's what I do for a living. Uh, it's what I do, but I could not wrap my head around and the rest of us could not wrap our head around. We were standing there watching that little TV going, how in the world could an airplane hit the twin tower as big as that is? And as we watched in horror, the, the three or four of us that were huddled around it watching, we then saw the second airplane strike the second tower. and everything changed forever. Now depending on how old you are, you may or may not even realize everything changed forever. Because it was 19 years ago. Somebody may tell you about it, if you're old enough to have been an adult at that time or at least old enough to have been aware of what was going on in the world, you know that things changed forever. Joel's making a point in his day in the situation they're facing that no matter what it is that happens, no matter what the devastation or the difficulty, the point is it is always time to seek God. That is always the correct response. And Joel leads the nation in verse 14. He says consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. That's always the right response, but I also know that not everybody is going to respond that way, and I have realized and learned over my life that when difficulty comes, some of the responses is some people will blame God, others people will curse God, and then still others, the camp I want to be in is the people who would turn to God, and that is the right response. And, And as I was studying this material, I found myself going to the book of Revelation, Revelation 16. Revelation 16, 9, 16, 11, and 1621 all three say the same thing. At a time when plagues are being poured out on the earth, there will be people who will curse God. And just one of those passages, 16:9, tells me that they were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over the plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. It amazes me. But again... These people, are the nation of Israel, they have found themselves in a complete disaster. They're an agricultural society. So what that really means is their economy has been completely destroyed and there's nothing anybody can do about it. That's what they're dealing with. And it doesn't matter if God allowed it or not. The right thing to do is repent. And really what this is about, this is the first thing to do is seek God rather than looking for a way to fix it. And the church is guilty sometimes. I don't mean city church, but the church that we're part of. Sometimes we're looking for a way to fix it when what we really need to do is be seeking God first. In our personal lives, in our church life, and the nation, we need to put God first. In chapter two, what we step into is something called the day of the Lord. First of all, I want to define this term for you. The day of the Lord, what the day of the Lord seems to be Laid out throughout the Word of God is that there is a time coming. Look, we live in a day of grace. By living in the day of grace, that means I can get away with a whole lot, it seems. People can uh, sin in all manner of ways. People can teach false gospel. People can curse God. And it doesn't seem like anything happens to them, but there is a day coming when God is going to pour out his wrath on a sinful world and a Christ-rejecting world. And Joel is standing in the middle of that devastation of their nation at that time, and he uses that as a soapbox to start talking about the day of the Lord that's coming. Because everybody thought everything was going to be okay. What we tend to do is we think it's going to just keep on going the way it's always been going, right? We think, oh, it's going to be okay, it's going to be all right, everything's going to get better. That's what the nation of Israel thought, and then the locust swarm came. So the answer in Joel 2.1, he starts to talk about this day of the Lord. He says, to blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Look, the day of the Lord is an event that is initiated by God. It is something that he controls, and it is throughout God's word. Just to give you a few examples of the few I found, Joel 1.15, 2.1, 2.11, 2.31, and 3.14, just in these three chapters. Amos 5.18, Zephaniah 1.14, Ezekiel 30, verse 3. Unless you think it's just something in the Old Testament, the Old Testament alone, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. I I don't think Joel was very popular. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear a doom and gloom message. And there's Joel standing in the middle of the dead of a station, and he's going, hey guys, this is bad, but this isn't bad as it's gonna get because something worse is coming. And and I doubt the crowd was running to hear him. Uh, But he uses this to address the fact that our human nature is to put off decisions that require something of us. And sometimes we do it to our own hurt. I'll just admit to you that the idea of being on earth when the wrath of God is poured out is absolutely terrifying, and it should be. But the good news is it's not a hopeless situation. We're not left to that, because in Joel 2, verse 12 and 13, he starts to speak this, and I want you to see this, yet even now. He's standing in the devastation. He's warning of the day of the wrath to come. And he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. He tells us what to do. And almost went here for the name of the message because for me it's the heart of this entire message. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Rend your hearts and not your garments. With the Israelite people, you find it all through the word. You'll find examples where they got bad news and they ripped their clothing. Uh, You got to remember what that meant for them. For them, they didn't run down to Walmart. They couldn't go and buy their favorite clothing at their favorite clothing store. Couldn't order it online. They sat down. They wove the fabric by hand with the tools they had of their day. They created the fabric, dyed them by hand, and if I had something to wear, it probably most likely was the only thing that I had. And for me to rip the only clothing that I own things must really be bad but God still wants more than that because that as impressive as that can be if it's the only thing I own that can be merely an outward show for a religious purpose to impress the people around me with how pious and how committed I am I mean the high priest ripped his garment when Jesus gave him the words that were used against him to bring the death sentence was surely was not a sign of true repentance it can just be a show what God wants is God wants something more what God wants is God wants me to return to him with my whole heart and not just an outward show and I've been really struggling with this this concept personally and I hope you'll listen to this and hear what the Lord's saying to you because I have to ask the question what does that mean and even more than what does it mean how do I do that I thought of one of Jesus' teachings uh, when he was asked about the greatest commandments, and he named the two, right? Uh, in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, and it's a quote from Deuteronomy 6, 5, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In other words, that's to love God with my entire person, with everything that is within me, everything that I'm made up of, body, soul, and spirit is to love God. And I still ask the question, how do I do that? What I would offer to you is it's not even possible unless it's a power of the work of the Holy Spirit And what I mean by that is the Holy Spirit prompts you. The Holy Spirit draws you. You know when it's happening, you hear his voice. He's inside, he's speaking to you and he's drawing you and saying, son or daughter, I want you in a relationship with me. Or I wanna take you deeper into a relationship with me. And you hear it, you feel it, you sense it. And then you have a choice. You can either say, yes, Lord, that's me. Here I am, take me as far as you want to. Or you harden your heart and you refuse to hear because it costs too much or you think it's gonna to cost too much. So again, it's more than just an emotion. It's more than an emotional response. It might have emotional response, but it's more than that. I would say that love brings obedience through relationship, but religious obligation just brings legalism and dead religion. If I am in this because this is what I'm supposed to do, there's no life in it. But if I'm in this because I'm in love with Jesus and his spirit is alive in me, then he will bring life through it through me and he will bear fruit for the kingdom. And I'll be honest with you, I'm gonna tell you, there's only been a few times in my life that I've really truly been desperate for God. But I also can say that every time I've been truly desperate for God, he has always showed up. He has never left me hanging. When I needed him, he was always there. And as I continue to walk this thing out, I find myself still needing him. My journey started in 1991. I was 31 years old. Don't do what I did. Don't put it off that long. But I found myself in 1991, and I would describe myself at that point as a stubborn, arrogant, headstrong young man, and the words I lived by at that point, whether it ever came out of my mouth, it was certainly in my heart and in my head, and that was, well, if I don't hurt anybody, then I should be able to do whatever I want to. It was a headstrong, arrogant, ignorant way to be doing life, and thank God he let the locust eat everything in my life to bring me to my knees and bring me to the realization that I cannot lead my own life. And I'm still walking with him and I'm still hearing him at times because if I'm honest, I want to be in charge. Come on, am I the only one? I wanna make my decisions, I wanna be strong, I wanna know what direction I'm going, I wanna decide it, but God often reminds me and brings me back to the place to go, no son, I need you to submit to me and I need you to do it my way doesn't matter if I understand it or not. And all I can do is simply continue to say this, forgive me, Lord. And his response is absolutely always the same. As he said earlier, yet even now. But I want you to see this, who is this God we serve? He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And if you don't recognize that, Joel is quoting, Joel is quoting from uh, Exodus 34, 6. When Moses was on the mountain and and Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, well, I can't show you my glory. You'll die. And he said, well, I'm going to hide you over here. And then as he passed by him, God said this about himself. He said, I'm gracious, merciful, and slow to anger. I abound in steadfast love and I relent over disaster. That's the God we serve. Do we understand this morning that God's mercy is actually more powerful than his wrath? And the Lord responded to their repentance in verse 18 and 19 of Joel 2. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied and will no more make you a reproach among the nations. That's what God does. When you call out to God, when you submit to Him, He no longer makes you a reproach. He takes away all guilt. He takes away all shame. There are consequences I've had to walk through in my life because of choices I made, but He takes away the sting of the shame, and He takes away the embarrassment of it, and He continues to work in my life. And in verse 25 and 26, He continues, He said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten yes he will it was 1991 when I came to God, came to the Lord because the locust basically in a figurative sense had eaten everything I wasn't the smart young man who humbled myself in church and said God I know I need you I was the headstrong arrogant one that said I'll do it my way until he had just allowed everything to be eaten and I finally humbled myself and praise God he has restored everything and more I can testify that it's true. And he goes through the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. That's why I said, I think God really did bring this one. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. And he has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Again, he takes away. He takes away the shame. Amen. Yes. You might be the person right now today that maybe you're making your own choices and maybe it seems like everything you put your hand to falls apart, been there. You might have found yourself asking this question sometime in your life, why does everything I want fall apart? Well, that's because I have learned that God loves me too much to let me go through life successful thinking I can do it in my own strength and my own power and leave this world without him. He will get involved in my life to make sure I know I need him. And I'm thankful that he does. And now part of my favorite part of the book of Joel, I'm only going to be able to touch on this. Verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit. And I'm not going to stop there, I'm going to continue. When you go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, I don't even have to say this. I hope everybody in the room already has gone there in your mind. You find 120 people who were followers of Christ. Jesus had been crucified. He had been raised from the dead. He had went and ascended on the Mount of Olives unto heaven. He had told them, Wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And 120 people in the upper room waiting to see what God was going to do were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we find he makes his appearance. Obviously, he'd been on the earth at times before, but he'd never filled people. And this was a promise from God that it was fulfilled and started. There came a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's the day of Pentecost. They're in the city. The nation of Israel is still scattered all around the Mediterranean region. They speak all the different languages in the areas where they live. They've all shown up, those that are devoted, and they're there in Pentecost, and this happens, and this can't be hidden. That's 120 people speaking languages they'd never even learned. And as this spilled out onto the street, people were amazed and are thinking, what in the world is going on and how is this happened and what does this mean? And in Acts 2, verse 12 and 13, it says they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking, saying that they were filled with new wine. When That's always what happens. When God does something new, when God brings something on the scene that we can't explain, we can't control, we can't uh, determine exactly how this is working, and we don't have it in our hand, there are people who start to mock it and go, this isn't God at all. They're just trying to bring something down that they don't understand and they can't control. But I love it. Peter knew exactly what was happening. Peter is now filled with the spirit in verse 15, 16 of Acts chapter two. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose, since this is only the third hour of the day, and that is about 9 a.m. in the morning, Uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. It is now on the scene. It was promised all the way back in this little book in the Old Testament, and now it has happened. But Peter doesn't say it's completed. Peter's talking about something has started. It's not completed because there's the rest of that passage I read has not happened. And I think it's going to happen in the end times. I think in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus alludes to some things when he's asked by his disciples, well, when will these things happen? And he starts talking about events that are going to occur. He says things like the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. and The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Look, the Bible declares that one day my Lord who left this world, after his first appearance, is coming back for a second appearance. And he ain't coming back as a suffering lamb. That's done. What the Word of God says about him now, and it's even in the uh, third chapter of Joel, he's coming back, and it was in one of the songs we did this morning, he's coming back as a roaring lion. His suffering's completed. It's over with. The Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2, but he's not leaving until this thing all wraps up. He's here with us now. He's here this morning. John, uh, in John's writings, Jesus said he has been with you, but he will be in you. And then a few things that he tells us, why we need the Holy Spirit in our life. He teaches us. He brings all things to our remembrance and all the things that Jesus has said to us in John 14, verse 25 and 26. John 15, 26 says that he will bear witness about me, meaning Jesus, And in John 16, verse eight through 11, it says that he convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I don't even know what sin is. I don't recognize what righteousness is, and I have no idea how to judge anything rightly unless it's the Holy Spirit of God that's working in my life and speaking to me. And if you'll listen to him, he'll say, son, that's sin, you don't need to be there. Back away from that. He'll go, that's righteousness, you need to embrace that. And he leads us and walks with us through this life. He will guide us into all truth according to John 16, verse 13 through 15. This is what Jesus said. He said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send somebody else. And it's going to be a good thing that I go away because if I don't, he's not coming. But when he comes, this is what he's going to do. We need to embrace that and invite him to fill us and be with us. He'll guide us into all truth and he'll glorify me, John 16, 13 through 15. And lest you forget, Joel tells us Joel chapter 2 verse 28 and in Acts two seventeen, he brings prophecy he brings dreams and he brings visions I can't even rend my heart unless the Holy Spirit of God is prompting me and doing a work in me probably about the best thing I can do in and of myself is work up some kind of religious uh, response that might impress you maybe I can work up a tear or two but I want something more than that I want something genuine. I want it to be the Spirit of God working in my life, and I want it to be responding. And I challenge you to be responding in faith to the Spirit's prompting. Amen? There's no way we got time to do this justice, but I am gonna throw something at you and challenge you to go into God's word. And as we go through these next few books, start studying and looking at this, because Joel chapter three is very interesting. And In a chap- verse two, he says, I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel. He's not done with Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. God has clearly set aside a day and a time and a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which by the way, we have absolutely no idea where it's at other than the fact it's somewhere in the nation of Israel. If you've got a study Bible, you're welcome to look in the notes. You might find that they'll tell you where it's at, but you'll find multiple different uh, people naming multiple different places because there's nowhere in biblical antiquity where there's a city or a place called the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So that's kind of hidden from us. God doesn't give us every single thing and lay it all out, but it is absolutely, I'm encouraged by this because this tells me that God's not done with Israel, which means he stands firm and true to his word. What he prophesied he's gonna do for the nation of Israel, he's gonna do for the nation of Israel. What he prophesied he'll do for the church, he's gonna do for the church. What he prophesied he's gonna do to a Christ-rejecting nation or world, he's gonna do to the Christ-rejecting world. These truths, are going to be fulfilled. They are going to happen. In Joel chapter 3 verse 9 and 10, it's interesting to me, he says, proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, lest let the weak say, I am a warrior. And some of you who know your word, read that and go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound quite right. Because in Isaiah chapter two, verse four, he seems to say the exact opposite. And Isaiah's message is repeated by Micah four, verse three. In that case, he said, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall do what? They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's almost the exact opposite. Well what Bible scholars seem to is agree on is that one, Joel, is talking about a battle that's going to happen in the end time, in the end days. When our Lord returns is a roaring lion and then what Isaiah and Michael, se- Micah seem to be speaking of is a thousand-year millennial reign when Christ Jesus is on this earth and we won't need to study war anymore. It'll be a time of peace. It'll be a time when he's in absolute control and he is... Uh, giving us peace I don't have to explore it all I can't I couldn't do it justice if I tried I can't connect all the dots for you Uh, but the Bible does include fascinating promises we call prophecy we can expect it all to happen in the future some of it we may have to go through some of it we're going to be able to avoid you might ask this morning it's a natural thing for us to ask where are we at on God's timeline that's what we want to know That's why books about prophecy sell so quickly and so easily. We want to know. I don't know that we can really calculate it. I don't know that it's even up to us to try to calculate where we are at exactly. But as I heard somebody put it this week, if I can use their term, we're in the both already and the not yet. That's where we're living. We're in the already. God's already done it. He said he was going to do it. We, we read the book of Daniel. Pastor Jim uh, preached us the book of Daniel. And when it was written, it hadn't happened yet. But we look back in history, we could see it's completed. It happened exactly as God said it was going to happen. So we can look into the has not happened yet, the already, but the not yet. We can look into the not yet, and we can know with certainty because God has fulfilled the things he said he would do. He's going to fulfill the things he said he will fulfill. Some of these won't be completed until the appearance of Christ Jesus. So what do we do with all that, Jim? Well, let me jump into the New Testament as I wrap this up. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that what? The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and it's going to happen while people are saying that there is peace and security then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That warning is coming all the way from the past with Joel, springing forward all the way into our time and beyond us into the time when this is actually gonna occur. It warns of a future, it warns of it so I can prepare for it. It warns of it so I can make the necessary choices in my life so that I'm not caught up in this and I'm not unaware The chapter just before that chapter, 1 Thessalonians 4:16, tells me what I am hoping on, and I hope you are. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I don't have to live in fear of expectation of what's going to happen in the day of the Lord, because I'm living in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm encouraging myself and you with what's going to happen and where I'm going to be. I'm going with the Lord. I'm going to be with him forever. Amen. As I wrap this up, this simply comes down to him. If I know him, I have no reason to fear the future. If you know him, There's no reason to have any fear, but what I do have is an obligation to sound the alarm and to offer hope to those who don't know him or those who are far from him. None of us, nobody can become righteous by their own power, no matter how hard they try, all they can do is uh, exhaust themselves and get aggravated. What I have to do is humble my heart when the work of the Spirit of God is at work I need to humble myself to him. I need to embrace the work that he's leading me to and not harden my heart against him because there's a danger there. So what we're to do, I have to humble myself before him and we're to rend our hearts and not just our garments. Are you ready? And I know when I say that, I'm asking those that are here and you're like, well, I wouldn't be here if I wasn't ready. Or are you ready? It's an honest question. It's the best question I can ever ask any group of people anywhere, and I'll ask it anywhere I get to go. And I ask those that are online, are you ready? And if you're not ready, what are you waiting on? What are you waiting for? There's no guarantee there's going to be tomorrow. We don't know. Uh, Brenda and I, we are in that phase of life where we're burying, we've buried our parents, we're now burying our siblings. And and, and I realize tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us. It doesn't matter where you're at on the, on the time clock of life. So what in the world do I do about all this? Peter, when he was filled with the Spirit and he spoke in Acts 2.38, he gave a very simple direction. He said, Peter said, repent and be baptized each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the best news I can give you. Where you're at, what you need to do, Uh, I can't judge for you. It's up to you. It's work between you and God. Uh, Those of us who want to pray with you, whether you're online, please reach out to us. Let us know. Uh, We'll be in the back to pray with you. If you want to pray about this or something else, or maybe you have a loved one you want to pray for, uh, please remember to sign up for groups. Uh, They start this week, various days throughout the week. Uh, Jeff Balance has a group starting, and no, it is not. 11 p.m. at night, it is. Is it, Jeff? No, I didn't think so. Okay, so that was the one mistake we saw this morning. So reach out. What will happen is if you haven't done this, uh, you were shown during the announcements where to go, what website to go to. There's a pamphlet. Thank you. Out front, there's one of these. Grab one of these and take it with you. The other thing I'll tell you is what will happen when you go online and you sign up for one of these groups and express an interest, that group leader will get an email automatically generated to them. That group leader then will reach out to you and ask you uh, about your interest because what we don't put in here is the uh, actual address in most cases that way you don't show up uh, unannounced because some of these like the group we do at our house is in our home Uh, we want to prepare some groups I'll tell you are going to be meeting online by virtual some groups are going to be meeting uh, in the home and we're going to navigate that together and figure out how to do that safely so I encourage you to become a part of a group and on top of that we're going to close and as I pray we'll close but Uh, Heavenly Father, we praise your name, we worship you and honor you, and we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live in fear, no matter what's shaking around us, no matter it's in our life or people around us, whether the world is shaking, Lord, we know that you're in control. We know that you have good things for us. We embrace you, we look to you, we honor you, and welcome you to fill us with your spirit and lead us for your glory in Jesus' name. So go change your world.